Okay, can we up the music for when we do questions? It's getting a little slow and dreary, right? Let's, let's, this is supposed to be like a party. <laughs> and they're getting to the best part. What do we do when things go bad? <laughs> okay, so we have a patient. It's a 55-year-old man with HCV-HIV co-infection. And you could see his labs there, at least the lab normals. You've heard about that already. Uh, you could read those, though um, they're sort of mixed. No symptoms. His physical exam is normal. His CD4 count is 325. And his HIV is suppressed less than 50 on raltegravir, emtricitabine, tenofovir regimen. And here's your first question. He's found to have HCV genotype 1. The report comes back without a subtype. He has high viral load. And he wants to know, does the stuff that I heard about on TV work for me? Should I be taking that? So you have to now make a decision. And your choices are you can order an ultrasound on him. You could order a liver biopsy on him. You could do another non-invasive marker test, one of the ones we talked about before. Or you could send it back to the lab to try and obtain a subtype. So go ahead and vote. Do I have to push my button? You're kidding. Sounds like pulp of okay. <laughs> It's a old time rock and roll. <laughs> Okay, so the first thing to tell you is that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and in, for this question, none of them are wrong, so you all win, okay? Feel good about yourself. This is great. So, so an ultrasound would not be unreasonable. I'm a little worried about that platelet count of 133, uh, if I saw any evidence of an enlarged spleen, I would be thinking, gee, this patient has portal hypertension, may have advanced fibrosis. In fact, I'm thinking about that saying, I wonder if I need a biopsy in this patient. Uh, but I know many of you don't have easy access to a biopsy. It, it's going through my head. I definitely would be getting some non-invasive marker because we've already got all those lab tests, so we have all the answers, and all I have to do is do the calculation. And that subtype, boy, that's really annoying, um, but there are some patients that, that actually are not subtypable, and if you send it back to your clinical lab, you're probably going to get the same result again. So you might send it back if you 
can convince someone to send it to a different lab, like if you normally use LabCorp and you want to go to Quest, sometimes you get a different result. So not unreasonable to try, or we may just have to live with that result. So in this case, the first thing that I got was an ultrasound on the patient. And uh, you don't have to be a radiologist to look at this. This is the abdominal wall. The probe is sitting here. This is liver. And there's all these little arrows, and they don't come in livers. But uh, in this case, <laughs> we put them all there so you could see this big thing sticking out in the center and say, Gosh, what is that? So, here are now your choices. You will now refer to a general surgeon for resection of whatever that is, refer to interventional radiology for a biopsy, refer to a transplant center, like, I don't know, but it sure don't look good, <laughs> say, I don't really care, I'm here to treat hep C. <laughs> or order a multiphasic CT scan. So go ahead and vote. Oh. <laughs> oh, there are your questions. Okay, so a number of you will refer to interventional radiology for a biopsy, and some will order a multiphasic CT. At least uh, some of you are going to refer this to a general surgeon for resection. So we need some education here. You should Never, with a capital N, <laughs> refer a liver lesion to a general surgeon. There, there are liver surgeons, and liver surgeons do liver surgery, and almost every other surgeon, while they sometimes can get away with it, will usually end up killing the patient. Sometimes they're really surprised because they do something, like a resection, and then, like, oh, yes, I can do this the way surgeons talk, and then uh, three weeks later, the patient doesn't go to their hospital. They show up in someone else's hospital with decompensated liver disease and die a few weeks after that. So you don't do that. Refer to interventional radiology for biopsy. A lot of you picked that because sort of that's how you would often think about things. Oh, you know, mammography picked up a spot, let's get a biopsy of it. Thyroid spot, let's get a biopsy of it. Liver, no, do not do that because there are two reasons. First, if this is a liver cancer, which you might be appropriately worried about in this patient, when you stick a needle in it, you seed the tract, and you take something that is potentially curable, and you make it incurable. So you do not put a needle into these lesions. The other is that some lesions in the liver are exceedingly vascular, and you stick a needle in it, and they pull the needle out, and out behind it comes a spurt of blood, and that patient starts bleeding. So. 
That is not something we would do in this patient. Refer to a transplant center? Um, you could because they will help you sort this out. Um, but let's see if we need to do that. Start DAAs. No one's going to start DAAs. And, uh, and I think that at the moment that's okay. And about half of you wanted to order a multiphasic CT, and that's the right answer here. We want to know in a multiphasic CT. Now, let's take a minute and say, what does that mean? Because all of you sitting with a patient or after you leave their room have to write an order. And the common order that gets written is CT scan of abdomen. Some of you might have two choices, CT scan of abdomen with or without contrast. <laughs> Both of those are wrong, okay? What is a multiphasic CT scan? So when a patient gets a normal contrast CT, they get put into the scanner, they get a first pass scan done no contrast. Then one of the techs comes in and injects contrast. And then he or she goes out and talks to their friend for about 10 minutes and has a conversation about how their weekend went or how their next weekend's going to go. And then they tell the patient, okay, hold your breath. I'm going to push the button now. And then they scan it. And the thing, the whole process takes about 15 minutes and uh, and then they get some images and they say, oh, those look good. And so I'm going to now send them on to the radiologist. In a multiphasic CT scan, they do a dynamic bolus injection and they start the scanning as the dye first goes in. And then they rescan everything again about 40 seconds later. And then they rescan everything again a couple of minutes after that. And so you actually end up with a pre-injection, injection during the arterial phase, then a venous phase, and a post-venous phase. And that's why they're called multiphasic. In some centers, in my center for years, we called these biphasic because the idea was we want to see arterial venous, but you still captured the other stuff. And then we had a new uh, imaging radiologist come from uh, Vanderbilt, and he said, oh, no, we call them triphasic. It's the exact same thing. And uh, so now we call them triphasic in my place, but in some places they say multiphasic. You have to use those words or they won't do it. They'll simply get the contrast CT and contrast CTs are no good. They will miss liver lesions. Okay, so we did it. And a multiphasic CT shows the lesion has the characteristics of a hepatic hemangioma. There's enhancement in all phases that's equivalent to the blood pool. And HCCs exhibit a washout early after the peak arterial phase. So this is different. This is a hepatic hemangioma. This falls into the class of, of bleeds like a, like a stuck pig. 
if you stick a needle in it, but you don't need to because on the CT, usually the characteristics are so clear on a multiphasic CT that this is not a malignant lesion. This is a hepatic hemangioma, which, we are, which are present, and they increase with age. They may be as high as 30 to 40% of the population eventually gets a hepatic hemangioma. So don't need to worry about it. Nothing. You reassure the patient, say, wow, that was nothing, and you move on. Sometimes when these are really big, we look at them to see if they're still growing because when they get to really big, like that big, they can spontaneously rupture and cause a problem. And sometimes, very rarely, we intervene on them. But this one's a small one. This was a couple of centimeters and nothing to worry about. So we feel good overall and we're ready to move on. We did calculate on our handy-dandy smartphone, the FIB4, and it's 3.18. And if you didn't remember, I'll remind you that 3.25 is high probability for advanced fibrosis cirrhosis. So this falls a little bit below that, sort of in that eh, mid-range. But we had access to a fibro scan, so we did transient elastography. And this comes in at 17.5 kilopascals, and that's, that's kind of firmly in the range of a liver stiffness that says this patient is probably cirrhotic. So dang, now I have test one says probably not cirrhotic. Test two says probably cirrhotic. I have a platelet count of 133, which suggests portal hypertension, which would suggest advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. So I'm kind of leaning towards cirrhosis here, and I'm a little worried about this test result because when you look at FibroScan, there's this thing called IQR, interquartile range, which tells you the probability that the test is right. And the manufacturer says if it's under 30%, it's a usable result, but there's a number of very large studies that say if it's over 24 you probably should significantly question that result. So now I'm even more confused. I don't know what this patient has. And we have a question. You would now treat the patient with a hemangioma, obtain a liver biopsy, or get one more test. You can get that commercial proprietary test, the fibro test that I told you about, or FibroSure in the US. Uh, that I told you about before. So go ahead and vote on that. Do I have to hit it to the next one to get them? Yes. Okay. Sleepy. <laughs> Is this like coming off Pandora or something? Okay. So a lot of you would get the fibro test, and that's not unreasonable. It may reflect your lack of an easy ability to get a biopsy, but a quarter of you are going to get biopsy, and some of you are going to say, good enough, 
I'm going to treat this patient. I have had enough nonsense. I wanted to treat them three weeks ago, and it's taken me that long to get to this point. Um, and, you know, that based on what we know, that might be okay, because maybe the patient's cirrhotic, maybe they're not cirrhotic, and you can treat either one as long as you think they're compensated. So, so in my case, because I live and love the liver, I would get a liver biopsy, and that's what I did. But that doesn't mean that that's what you have to do in this situation. So here is my liver biopsy, and the patient is indeed cirrhotic. So now I have to make another decision. I'm going to obtain an EGD for variceal screening or start treatment for HCV or order an EGD and start treatment for HCV, or you could refer to a hepatologist for treatment evaluation because this one's getting way too confusing. So go ahead and vote. When we go to Portland next week, we need new playlists. <laughs> Okay, so, so most, of you, most of you have given up now. And, and I'm curious, is it, is it because of the cirrhosis or the hemangioma or just like this is just beyond me. I've treated 10 patients and I don't want this to be my 11th because this one's really confusing. Yeah, yeah, that one. Okay, this one, take it off my hands. Um, so, I, I think the answer here is I would try to get the EGD, but I'm ready to start treatment. He's a cirrhotic, but we said before he had no symptoms or signs of advanced or end-stage liver disease. I know he's cirrhotic, but he's compensated. We know that there's what looks like a hemangioma in his liver. And uh, so I do want to get the EGD. It's not an emergency. And in fact, based upon the scheduling in my place, I might try to get this patient treated before I, I do the EGD and schedule the EGD for a month or two after the treatment. So it's not something that has to be done now, but it is something that at some point we'd want to do because the patient is cirrhotic. Which one of these would not be an acceptable regimen in this patient? So this is initial treatment, cirrhotic, genotype 1, question mark, subtype. So 
we have to assume it's the worst subtype. If you can't get the answer on the subtype, you have to assume it's a 1A, which is harder to treat than a 1B. So GP is not recommended for eight weeks in a cirrhotic patient. So we're going to go want a 12-week regimen in that patient, and uh, so that would be the one we would choose there. And uh, this shows you type 1 genotype. This is from the guidelines, and, uh, and all of these are 12 weeks. Um, if you did uh, mutation testing with albuspheric rosoprevir, then you might have to go 16 weeks if you found key mutations present. While you're waiting for insurance approval, the patient calls to say, my ankles are like totally swollen up and my weight is up 15 pounds. So what do I do? You would now start furosemide Lasix, 60 milligrams a day, repeat the ultrasound, tell him to raise his legs when sitting and wait for approval of his HCV meds, or call for help at the transplant center. So again, never wrong to call for help. It's, it's okay. Never be shy about calling for help. But about half of you would repeat the ultrasound, and that's the correct answer. Start Lasix because his legs are swollen is not the correct answer. This is not congestive heart failure. So, I mean, this guy was kind of fine before, and all of a sudden he's getting leg swelling and weight gain, ultrasound is the right answer here. And this is his ultrasound now, and for those, again, that don't read ultrasound, this is the probe, the skin, and then this, now the liver is no longer touching along the, uh, the peritoneal lining because there's fluid in between. This patient has now developed ascites. While you've been waiting, and we see this, patients say, how did this happen to me overnight? And the answer is, it didn't happen overnight. This is years in the making, and, uh, but patients suddenly decompensate. And what tips them over? Well, there's a ton of things that could tip you over, getting a cold, having a fall. I, I literally had one patient that uh, I cured his hep C, but he was cirrhotic, and he went to change a light bulb in his bathroom, standing on his toilet. He, the seat shifted, he fell, he broke his leg and his hip, and then he decompensated because of that. The liver is a homeostatic organ, and tipping over that idea of going from compensated to decompensated, it doesn't take much. An automobile accident, a surgery for something that had nothing to do with the liver, uh, a bad case of the flu can all tip you over. So this patient tipped over. So now you would start 
spironolactone 50 and Lasix 20, do a diagnostic tap, contact a transplant center, one and two, one, two, and three, or send for a TIPS. Does everyone know what a TIPS is? Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, which is a treatment for ascites. Okay, so really mixed results. Um, you would not send him for TIPS. Um, it's too early for that because TIPS is reserved for patients that have refractory ascites, meaning you can't treat with diuretics. You would do a diagnostic tap, and you would be looking for characteristics that are consistent with portal hypertension you would contact a transplant center. And you would start aldactone and Lasix at a dose of 50 and 20. That is the starting dose for treatment of a patient with liver-associated ascites. So aldactone is actually the key drug in this. Again, it's not congestive heart failure. So the Lasix assists, but you want to keep the Lasix dose low. We tend to keep the treatment always in this ratio of aldactone to Lasix. So 50, 20, 140, 280. And when you get over 400 on aldactone, then you have refractory ascites. That's when you consider tips. So again, I wouldn't expect you to be managing the patient at that point, but early on, you don't just snap your fingers and the transplant center appears. In our center, it takes six to 10 weeks to get into the transplant center. So you have to do something, again, by talking to them you can validate what your steps are and what you're doing, but you don't, you have to start management in this patient and this would be the starting place. Again, not that you have to remember this, if you take away nothing other than I need to talk to someone rather than ignore it or give them huge doses of Lasix um, because Lasix will throw them into renal failure when they're like this, so you have to be very careful with the Lasix. Um, this is sort of the stepwise approach to thinking about this newly decompensated patient. So now we know he's a decompensated cirrhotic. We talked about that before, so this one should be really easy. But uh, what regimen are you going to use for HCC screening in this patient? And uh, go ahead and answer.
Good. So you were listening. Half of you were listening. Well, more than half. Ultrasound every six months. Actually, yes, most of you were listening. This is the official AASLD correct answer. This is what I and most of my U.S. colleagues would do. Why is it different from the U.S. guidelines? Because a Canadian guy ran the U.S. guidelines for this, and uh, they decided that it wasn't cost-efficient for Canada to do the AFPs. And that's how the guidelines are written. Um, AFP every six months and ultrasound yearly, well, technically you are doing screening, um, and it's probably easier to get that. But the reason we don't do that is that it has to do with something called the Milan criteria. So it comes from Milan, Italy, and it basically says that if your tumor is larger than five centimeters, you can't transplant that patient for a curative transplant for HCC. So you have to step back and say, when can I see a tumor on ultrasound? And the answer is tumors are routinely regarded as findable when they're one centimeter or more. And the second question is, what is the doubling time of a tumor? And the answer is, it's every four to six months. So if you wait a year, a tumor that came in at a one-year interval and that was seen for the first time at one and a half centimeters will have outgrown the Milan criteria by the time a year passes, and you took a patient that was curable and now made them an incurable <laughs> patient with liver cancer. So that's why it's every six months. Um, how would you stage the liver disease for this patient? Your choices are child's Pew score or MELD score or no need to stage when the patient looks ill enough, I'll send them to the transplant center. And MELD is the correct answer here. MELD gives us the score we need to know to know about transplant priority. So MELD over 15 is considered transplantable. And then you have to look at what center you're at because patients are transplanted in different places at different MELDs. So we would transplant in this a patient like this in my center to meld of around 25, but if you're in New York or San Francisco, you don't get a liver till you're about 30. So you need to know what your local standard is on this. You, you do need to stage the patient. It has nothing to do with looking ill enough. Um, these patients need to be seen by a transplant center at this time not imminently like today or tomorrow, but in the next few months, most centers will want to see this patient at least once and get them in the system. And you shouldn't be frustrated when they then send them back to you and says, say, not ready yet, but we'll, now we know about them, we'll see them yearly. They're not going to see them every two months for you. 
they're going to see them probably on a yearly basis if their meld is, is 11-ish. Uh, this is more for me, but uh, do you think liver transplant is an option for your HIV-infected patients with liver disease? Go ahead and vote. Okay, good. Most of you say yes, and the answer is yes, but you need to know that of the 138 transplant centers in the country, less than 20 are transplanting HIV-positive patients, and uh, most centers will not, like in Ohio and our entire region. Our center in the Cleveland Clinic will, but there's five other transplant programs within 200 miles and they won't. So you do need to send someone to a center if your patient is HIV infected that actually does that. Patient survival is lower compared to non-HIV positive patients unless you use certain other selection criteria. And if you do that, then the, then the outcomes become equal. The interesting thing, which no one ever expected, and it's just very intellectually interesting, is that even though these patients have HIV, their immune rejection rates are actually higher than those without HIV. And there's a lot of studies going on as to why that is, and there's some very interesting answers, and I won't go into those things, but, but it turns out that you can't go low on the immunosuppression. You actually may have to go high on immunosuppressive drugs in these patients to successfully maintain the transplant. So this patient now has an appointment in transplant hepatology in eight weeks. Still coming to you. Should you now treat this patient for hep C or you, would you not treat this patient for hep C? Many of you would treat this patient, and a number of you would not. And uh, so at this point, first, the decision is not yours. I know you want to cure this patient's hep C, but now we're dealing with a decompensated patient, and actually this decision needs to be made by the transplant center. And uh, you can treat decompensated patients, but generally, Unless you are a hepatologist in a transplant center, you probably shouldn't treat these patients. As soon as they're decompensated, your part of this job is done. You're going to have plenty of other patients to treat. Don't worry about these patients. Let these be my headache, okay? Because, because there's a really hard, hard decisions here. These patients are treatable with very good response rates, but they are lower than in patients with compensated child's A disease. This is uh, using sophilodiposphere, but it's the same for the other agents I showed you. 
The bigger issue is this one of timing. Same issue you heard about a little while ago from Dr. Kim with regard to renal transplant. Some of these patients will be put at a disadvantage if you treat them now. They will get a liver faster by being HCV infected than by being HCV cured. And their overall survival will be better the faster they get transplanted. So, and the trouble is there's not a hard and fast rule. You need to know the local characteristics of the likelihood of getting different kinds of organs in your center. So in my center, we get a lot of hep C positive organs because we're one of the, the hotspot places for the opioid epidemic. And so we have a lot of young kids, unfortunately, dying on the streets of overdoses from fentanyl and carfentanil. And many of those, their families provide the organs, but they're hep C infected organs in a high proportion of cases and we use those organs in HCV-positive patients. So the recipients, so, and then we treat them afterwards. And they get organs much faster, those patients. In other places in the country, that may not be true. So you need to know where you're at. And again, you as a group can't make that decision. So this is the patient. You would follow the guidance. Now, they may tell you oh, you know, the patient lives far from the transplant center. We're a long way from Birmingham, right? We're four hours out from here. If you had a patient in this area, you might say, be told, yes, start this patient on SoftVel and keep us informed of what's going on. But you should do it with their help. So... I'm going to sort of summarize the liver disease things. Staging is important. It helps to determine not only viral disease management, but liver disease management. Compensated cirrhotics can and should be treated. And if you do that, and they can be treated by you, the word cirrhosis shouldn't scare you off. But you have to remember the issues of surveillance, and you need to be constantly aware of decompensation because the patient may have been here yesterday compensated and here today decompensated. And that appears to happen overnight in some patients. And liver transplant is a viable option for decompensated patients and patients with liver cancer, including patients with HIV. Okay.